I'm Brett Samuels, and welcome to episode five of the Open Mic Marketing Podcast. This week, I'm heading stateside to speak with Brad Casper, CEO and co-founder of Heart and Soul Marketing in Phoenix, Arizona. Previous to this, Brad was president of the Dial Corporation and Henkel of America and spent 16 years in senior roles at Procter & Gamble. I'll be discussing a wide range of topics with Brad, including what it was like setting up his new agency in the middle of a pandemic, why their purpose is resonating so well with clients, and I'll also find out whether Brad prefers agency or client side. So Brad, we met in Phoenix, Arizona in 2019 when you were the CEO of OH Partners Agency. So how come you and your partner Matt Moore are now running a brand new startup? I guess both Matt and I just sensed that there was a need and and both a time for change. I do believe that COVID had some influence on that. But as you might be able to relate, and I'm sure some of your listeners, you know, four partners in a C-suite can often get a little bit, shall we say, congested and complex. And although for the first three to four years, we were more or less aligned, I felt that as 2020 continued to roll on, there were chasms forming between what Matt and I wanted to do versus the original partners. So we just thought it was better to go our own way when it didn't look like we could buy them out. And it's a really brave move, may I say, doing that, particularly one in the middle of a pandemic to moving from a really successful agency with 150 staff, big client lists. So Did it feel a big move to make at that time? It did. And I think we asked ourselves, oh, is this bravery or is this courage or is this foolishness? But I think we've erred on the side of, you know, this turned out to be maybe a bit lucky, a little bit genius. One of the things that COVID actually facilitated, everybody was working from home. A lot of clients didn't require big agencies to entertain them, take them out, meet them in a boardroom, et cetera. So the playing field was a little bit leveler than it was probably pre-pandemic. On top of that, we, of course, know that there were a lot of unrest employees who also were looking for change or weren't satisfied. Clients, many of them large ones saying, gosh, I, I don't need this big behemoth agency anymore. I just need an agile core group of people. So I think being a smaller, nimble, agile indie agency actually contributed to our initial success. And I think it's continued to propel us into 2021. You talk about some of the attributes of the new agency and and how, of course, they appeal to to clients, particularly with with everything that's going on in the world. Your agency, by the way, is called uh, Heart and Soul. Talk to me a bit about Heart and Soul's brand purpose and and how that's got such great traction with with the clients that you've onboarded. Yeah, I think as Matt and I were contemplating brand names, et cetera, he raised to me in mid to late September, he said, you know, Brad, people have always said that you and I as leaders had big hearts. And he said, what if we name our agency Big Heart? And I said, oh, I think there's a pet food company called Big Heart. And I said, what about heart and soul? Because some of the people often said we were kind of the heart and soul of the predecessor company. Of course, we didn't think it would be available. And sure enough, it turned out to be. And we go, this is nuts. And 
At the same time, if you think about this, mid to late September 2020, the pandemic raging like crazy, racial issues and racial tension, especially in this country, are at an all-time high. And then you throw against the backdrop a political season and an election year for president where the cacophony of Democrats versus Republicans this didn't feel like a very warm, empathetic environment. And we said, why can't we emerge as that contrarian voice? In fact, Matt was listening in on a broadcast in the United Kingdom in late September in a webinar, and he heard a speaker reference the kindness economy. We are at the precipice of the kindness economy. It certainly didn't feel like it in the United States, but we said, damn it, why aren't we part of that movement? And so the purpose of our agency, as we articulated it, first we said, we are going to look internally and we're going to hire people who have big hearts and big ideas. We wrote a cultural contract before we wrote a business plan. We figured if we hired people who also had great empathy, great emotion, who also wanted to be part of a big change, as you know, advertising can be at the forefront of change, social issues, and not just for nonprofits, but certainly for profits as well. The other thing that struck us as, wow, more and more companies, maybe because of Simon Sinek, are asking, what's their why? And we said, why don't we hone in on that? We'll define our why as being a very purpose-led company that's going to help use creativity to change the way people think, feel, and live. And we believe other clients will say, you know what, we need a little of that too. And I gotta tell you, it's really starting to resonate. Everything that you're saying, Brad, certainly resonates with me. And I think it, it's come, as you say, at a really good time. There's obviously things going on culturally, politically, economically, but it, it, it seems to me that over the last 10, 15 years, marketing's kind of, uh, it's not a dirty word now, but it's certainly got some connotations that are negative. And I think it was always seen, you know, as quite sexy and glamorous. And, and I'm not sure what's done that, whether it's the, the tech companies coming into it and almost sanitizing it as an industry. But it, it just feels to me that the marketing industry needs some love and, and needs some, some kind of repositioning. I think that's very, very well said. All the things that you talked about, COVID, social unrest, the political climate. The other thing that we observed, and fortunately, I have three kids that fall into this category of Gen Z and millennials. I've seen in this generation more authenticity, seeking solutions, whether it's more organic food and less environmental waste. I'm encouraged that this generation, maybe more so than my own, is really taking up that. In fact, we've done some research, and Matt and I made a presentation recently to the Association of National Advertisers here in the greater Phoenix area uh, in the Southwest. And we said purpose-led marketing is really super hot right now. And we believe that it's this generation of Gen Z and millennial that are demanding it, frankly. And so I think you're seeing a pivot in some of the advertising types, and maybe also the benefits that they're offering to consumers has now changed. I think there's a wholesomeness about it. It's that triple bottom line that we've all heard about. I think corporate social responsibility is front and center. 
I completely agree. I, it, it feels to me that there's certainly been a shift and, and whether that's people wanting or needing to belong to something a bit more, that kind of tribalism and people feeling yeah. like they want to really feel part of something or, or whether just people want more transparency from the brands that they buy from and, and associate themselves with. And we have conversations interesting as well, particularly with our B2B clients to say, look, guys, you need to stand for something more than just profit. Even in a B2B environment, people still expect the same experiences and that same sense of belonging that they would with, with a B2C brand, you know, and that's the expectation now. So what's your take on, on kind of brand purpose and, and why it's such a hot topic right now? I think it's for the reasons that we've just talked about. I think the consumers are helping lead it. I think both B2B and B2C. One of our first two clients at this agency, Heart and Soul, a very large publicly traded financial institution in Texas, which of course is a, a massive state here in the United States, very successful. And we said, oh my gosh, you guys do so much in the community. You do so much beyond what banks are asked and required to do. And yet you don't celebrate it. You don't really talk about it. And frankly, you're not getting enough credit for it. And I appreciated their humility, frankly. But when we help them craft new purpose, mission, vision, values, et cetera, and put it all together in a cohesive thing, we said, this is going to help your employees. This is going to help your future clients. And they adopted that. And I'm proud to say that they're one of the most successful banks now in, in North America. And it's not because of us. It's because of what they were doing. And now they're willing to actually maybe take some credit for it. So there's no question that COVID and some of the social unrest and movements that were taking place and the rancor that was coming from our political office, the president at the time, I think contributed to other people just looking in the mirror and say, enough's enough. We got to do something a little kinder and gentler. I think that's a really good point. So for me, it goes back to your point earlier around authenticity. And you mentioned that brand previously, that it was there. It was just that you, you know, you help shine a light on it and really tell it. How do you work with brands to tell their purpose in an authentic way? It's interesting. We just brought on a new client and we went back to the origins of this company. It's a food company uh, out of California that has a national footprint. And we spent a lot of time understanding from the family standpoint, why did you get into this? How did you do it? They started selling their products at farmer's market. And, you know, we really traced step by step. And as they said, we needed to do this to feed ourselves. This was our only source of income. And they weren't braggadocio or anything like that. And so I guess the key is to make sure when you're on the agency side, when you're working with a client that may or may not acknowledge that they have this deep sense of purpose, getting them to recognize that they do, and then faithfully beginning to articulate it, not in a salesy way, but storytelling, when done genuinely, can be incredibly motivating. And when you have a product that's organic, vegan, gluten-free, all those different elements that people are perhaps looking for, and it just tastes great, it's easy to begin telling a story. And this new client, I know some of your podcast listeners are saying, what's the brand name? It's crazy. It's called Bitchin' Sauce. Wow. 
And I asked the founder, who was a 17-year-old girl at the time, and now she's 32, a mom of multiple, and her husband sings in a rock band. (laughs) It doesn't sound real, I know, but Bitchin' Sauce, she said, I just knew that what I was making was so good, and they were in Southern California, so it had like a surf culture. They said, this taste is bitchin', and they created the (laughs) brand of sauces and dips called Well, that would certainly get some standout on the UK shelves. I can tell you that, Brad. Brilliant. Brad, before I talk a bit about your career and how you found that, I just wanted to roll back a bit to, you mentioned culture with heart and soul and that you wrote this manifesto almost for culture. Can you elaborate a bit about what's in there? I wish I'd printed it out because this is not a simple post-it note or whatever. Uh, You know, a lot of people have four or five core values. We have about 20. And we really talk about attitudes and behaviors, everything from there's a difference between perfectionism and excellence. We're okay to make mistakes. You know, one of the ones that I really love, and we've all been in organizations like this at some point in time, we make a comment. We want people who provide energy, not suck energy out of an organization. Too often, companies begin to hurt themselves because what seems to be agreed in a conference room, they get out of the conference room and the next thing they do is they're complaining and they're poking fingers at their client or their colleagues. And we said, we don't want any of that. If you're called heart and soul, you got to embrace everything that you love about an employee as well as respect those things that you may not agree with. Then every Monday morning when we get all employees on Zoom for a company meeting to kick off Mondays, Matt will read one of the core pillars and remind people about this. So this is a living, breathing document. And our performance evaluations, which we'll do in the fourth quarter after one year as a company, we're going to evaluate people on their use and living by these attitudes and behaviors that are the cultural contract. Of course, performance is a subset of all that. Frankly, you couldn't be unsuccessful if you followed all of these cultural norms, I guess, because there's a great sense of performance as well as loving and caring. So it's a nice blend. I find that fascinating. Culture is is so important, isn't it, for for businesses? And I, I wanted to ask two questions, if I may, around that. So firstly, how have you found trying to embed a culture when everyone has worked remotely. So from my perspective, we've been in business here for 20 years. The culture is really established and set. And I found it really difficult trying to embed that culture with new starters who've never experienced the office environment and and those types of things. And then the second question was around recruitment. So how you judge people from interviews to have those kind of values that you set Great questions. And there's no doubt that creating culture in an environment where you're in the office regularly, you're down the hall, even if you had multiple offices, I don't know, there's that collegiality that comes from a group of people that are co-located. We still to this day don't have an office, although we're building one in Scottsdale and we'll be moving in shortly. Our employees are looking greatly forward to that, even though this Delta variant is certainly shaking the confidence of of people all across this country, and and rightfully so. 100% of our employees are vaccinated, which I'm delighted. That was by choice, not by force. And so they look forward to the socialization aspects and those ad hoc moments. In the absence of that, we have used Zoom 
And like a lot of people who did Zoom happy hours and stuff like that, we did supplement it with periodic group gatherings out in parks and open air. But I, I, I think the culture is obviously more than coffee machines, foosball tables, and all that kind of stuff. It's the sincerity that they see their colleagues in Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting and how they're behaving and how they're acting and how they're collaborating. And, you know, it helps that we have a lot of people who are funny. And one of our VPs is, is actually a stand-up comic. So he keeps us in stitches. And then some of the people who are frankly a little shy and reserved and would never do anything in an office to be theatrical, when you're on that Zoom chat, you're protected. You can send a zinger about somebody's shirt or their hairstyle or whatever, and everybody knows it's playfulness. So I do believe in a weird way, the absence of the office and the use of this work from home environment has actually brought us together in in ways that I think are unexpected. And then from a recruitment standpoint, Brett, it's simply merely having individuals tell their story authentically to candidates. No, this is unlike anything I've ever been in. Do I miss my seeing them in person? Yes. Can I do that? Absolutely. And we make a a habit of it. But more importantly, it's just how they feel. And when your brand is heart and soul, it's about how you feel and how connected you feel. And I think that's, at least in this first year, will be our secret sauce. Very good. Very good. So, Brad, you've had a very high-profile career in business before entering the agency environment. So tell me, what's toughest, agency or client side? Oh, boy. I don't think there's a winning answer here uh, because (laughs) I can tell you for 25 to 30 years, I was on the client side and in some great companies like Procter & Gamble for 16 and a half years, president of Church & Dwight in Princeton, New Jersey, and the CEO of Dial, which was then owned by Henkel of America. The CEO role there, just the number of variables you are playing with product technologies, your software, your ERP system, supply chain, plants. I mean, the diversity of challenges is probably greater on the client side when you're in a manufacturing and marketing environment. But the one thing you have is that you are somewhat in control of the variables. On the agency side, you've made a choice to be in the consumer or business-to-business services, professional services business, And so you give up a bit of that control. Ultimately, we can choose who our clients are, et cetera. But sometimes you hire what you think is a great client or you get hired by a great client. And it turns out that the relationships are tough. So I think that for me, when I first stepped into an agency six years ago, and that was the hardest thing for me is like, wow, I'm no longer the client. I'm the agency. So I need to be, I don't want to say subservient, but I certainly have to accept some things that I probably wouldn't be comfortable with if I were on the client side, but it's an important revenue stream and a profit stream and we want to do great work and and serve them at a high level. So that has probably been the most humbling and challenging aspect of being on the agency side, a little less control of the outcomes. But I imagine you must like it because I suppose with the move, you you probably could have easily gone client side again, but you you chose agency. So there must be something there that you really love. It's true. And I did have other opportunities last August and September to go client side, and it was dangerously close to accepting it. Matt twisted my arm and really challenged me to think about 
if this is the last phase of my professional career, if this is the last CEO role or chairman role I have, wouldn't I love it to be in my own shop? And I wasn't certain. My wife, I give her credit. She kept saying, do it. This is what you should do. And maybe you'll hire our kids. And I know uh, Law Creative knows something about the importance of family. And so I've discovered that too. And it's been absolutely delightful. And literally, I was saying about a week or a week and a half ago, Brett, that of all the professional ups and downs, I've made more money in my career and other jobs, but I've never been more satisfied professionally and personally than I am right now with Heart and Soul. Amazing. I guess it's that combination, isn't it, of the ability to do everything that, that you want to do and, and have that and, and then work with your family as well. And it's, what a great combination. I, as you say, yeah, um, I've certainly had that over the years in, in law as well. So know, know that feeling very well. Absolutely. Very good. So just switching gears, Brad, you mentioned at the start of this interview around some of the big network agencies maybe struggling with the change in environment and maybe the change in, in mentality that clients have. Is is that a theme that's running in, in the States now? Are, are you seeing more indies have that success and clients be a bit more open to kind of non-networked big agencies? Yeah, there's no question about it. I mean, that is not something that was, you know, new during COVID, but I do think COVID accelerated the challenge that large agencies that were burdened with lots of overhead, lots of rent, maybe more staff. Of course, I think they estimated something like 50 to 100,000 people in the agency business in the U.S. were put out of work last year. Many of them have been reabsorbed, but I mean, it was a real shockwave in those network agencies, many of whom are beholden to shareholder value, et cetera, I think we're really hurt. Of course, Sir Martin Sorrell and S4 Capital have shown an incredible agility to find, acquire, and integrate a lot of companies and really poke a finger in the eye, if you will, of, of other network agencies. You know, the great thing about these network agencies is they do have a ton of talent. They have resources. They have capital. And so they can continuously reinvent themselves. But the thing that I believe that stands in their way is it still costs a lot of money per hour to employ and engage them. And so I think that there is still a movement among clients as opposed to when I was at Procter & Gamble, boy, you would get in bed with a single agency. And P&G was proud to have a very short roster of Omnicom and Publicis agencies. And now... P&G has probably 50 to 100 agencies. Some of them have five and six people in it. So they've shown that openness. And I believe that that's just a microcosm of what's going on elsewhere in the United States. Indie agencies are doing very, very well. Their agility, their speed, their ability to do creativity in a way that might be a little more provocative. We don't have all the asset structure and there may not be some AI and AR things that other bigger agencies can do better than us, but our partnering model allows us to go out and select best-in-class partners, if you will. If there's something that we don't have internally, we're happy to bring in another party. I and I think that gives us some flexibility. Something we've we've always done a lot here where I think a lot of the business, absolutely, you have to do an amazing job. You have to be great creatively. You have to get the results. But a lot of it is down to the relationship that you have. And so we often have clients say, 
oh, guys, can you do this or can you help with this or do you know someone who can do this? And actually, as long as they're dealing with us in terms of the relationship, then they're, they're pretty okay with bringing selected partners in. Just out of interest, how do you select those partners that you have on a roster? That's an excellent question. And I, I don't think we have perfected it yet. Uh, when we were forming Heart and Soul in October of 2020, there were some things we just knew we are not going to be able to build it organically or certainly fast enough because within a month of our opening the doors, we had an international client, $8 billion US dollars in sales, and they were going to do national advertising and we wanted to support them. We knew we could support them strategically and creatively with social, video, television. The one thing I wasn't confident about, nor was Matt, was can we buy media across all these formats from out of home to digital to social. And so we said, let's find a partner that's already scaled, that doesn't have a conflict. So we found an independent media agency that was buying eight, 900 million US in media across. And they said, we'll give you an exclusive in the state of Arizona. You'll be our only agency partner. That gave us a seat at the table with much bigger clients than we probably deserved in our infancy. And then it was gosh darn, we're not going to have enough steady work to probably have a dev team and and website developers. Let's find a partner for that. So we just kind of looked at it almost on a project by project basis. And then we started seeking out potential partners. Some of them were local, but some of them are not. And I guess we have a tendency to want to prefer those partners that are arm's length. But in many cases, we're finding that the best partner may not be across the street or across town, but across the country. I think it's a really smart strategy, isn't it? Because in effect, you're pulling in best in class specialists, but you're only giving those to the client when they need them. So you're not having to charge them all the time for it. So it keeps the cost base down. It's it's a really smart thing to do and very good idea. You mentioned the kind of success of indie agencies currently. And I think in the UK, that is absolutely a trend that's happening here too. There's also another theme, I suppose, running concurrently to that, which is in-housing. So companies bringing all of their marketing in-house, all of the services, whether that is digital, advertising, design, branding, that type of thing. Is that something that's happening in the States? And and how are you kind of working against that? It absolutely is. And, you know, some large, large companies like a PepsiCo or whatever – you know, had gone very in-house years ago. And then the pendulum began to swing back. At the same time, Brett, you've got some large companies that are bringing more and more of the capabilities in-house, but they're still looking for agencies of some sort to perform some roles. And I think the way we're becoming comfortable with this is that we tell our client, particularly if they have portions of an in-house agency, they've got some social, they've got some digital, they've, that's fine. We'll work around them. We'll work with them. We're named Heart and Soul. We're about collaboration and collegiality, and it's about finding the best solution for you. And if you perform some of those roles and we perform others, that's going to be fine. That kind of flexibility, and boy, when I was at Procter & Gamble, you know, 15, 20 years ago, that conversation wouldn't be happening. P&G was adamant not to be having that kind of capability. They believed that agencies had a secret sauce and a fiefdom that was going to be better. And now that has changed too. And I do think digital and social. And and now in this country, influencer marketing is just blowing up. 
And there are whole new agencies that are just recruiting influencers and their profiles and you select those services. So I think we're just going to have to live with the fact that in-housing is not going to end anytime soon. And we'll have to continue to define our value proposition in a way that either brings incremental creativity, incremental flexibility, and a better value proposition to some of those companies than they can find by building it internally and organically. Yeah, it's a really good point. We became part of a, a group at the end of last year. And the group's purpose now is to find and unlock hidden value in brands, people, and agencies. And I think to your point, I still think there's a real need for agency viewpoint that takes it outside of that very internal view that brands can have. And I think there's absolutely an argument to say, look, if you live and breathe and work for the brand, you are going to know this brand better than an agency ever could. But I also think that makes you very internal focused as well. And and to have that kind Mm -hmm. of external perspective, whether it's strategic or creative and and just those shared experiences that you get from working on a variety of brands as well, that you can say, oh, actually, that would work really well for those guys. Or or, we tried this and you guys should should experience that. So, you know, in-housing, definitely a a trend that we're finding in the UK and sounds like you you are too. What other trends are are there in the States? I'm always really interested to to know kind of what's going on over the pond. I do see more purpose-driven marketing happening very overtly and consciously than perhaps two or three years ago. And it's not just because we named our agency that and we thought we were chasing a pup down the ice rink. It was already kind of there. And I know there some of your podcast listeners in Europe will be both pleased, but maybe skeptical about the next thing I'm going to say. I actually believe that this country is beginning to appreciate sustainability and environmental impact at a much more genuine level than historically. We've done a lot of greenwashing over the years, and we've had politicians who've refused to acknowledge that we have a climate change and issues. I believe, again, maybe starting with those Gen Z and those millennials, those large purchasing power cohorts, they're telling people, no, damn it, we've had enough plastic in the ocean. We've got to find another solution. So I think that's another. We just talked about influencers. I cannot believe the impact that influencers are having across the the whole broad spectrum of startups all the way to well-established brands with multi-billion dollar portfolios. Do you think that's a bubble that might burst or do you think that's just a, another channel now that we, we have to kind of incorporate in our integrated campaigns? I remember this lesson from my early days at P&G. And here we're the world's largest advertiser. We're spending more and, and we've tried to treat advertising as a science. Yet one of the things that I remember from the 80s and 90s was something to the effect of the most influential advertisement is actually a friend or a family member who makes a personal recommendation. Social influencing is essentially taking that 20 or 30 year old idea and now just digitizing it and making it very broad scale. I don't think it's a bubble. I think it is a movement and I believe that social media, you know, whether it's Clubhouse and Facebook and Instagram and and Twitter and all those things just propel it and give a platform to users. Now, a lot of influencers, of course, they're not authentically using the product. They're getting paid. I'll do this. I'll say that. Send me another shirt. Send me another blouse or whatever. But I think those that really adopt it 
and this bitchin sauce is an example. They have hundreds of influencers. They don't pay any of their influencers because people are just so devoted to that brand that they're willing to talk about it. So I think it's going to continue, Brett. I guess I wish I was an influencer. <laughs> <laughs> so do I. So do I. Well, well, you know, I think it goes back to your point around authenticity. As long as it's authentic and it's whether it's green or whether it's influencer mm-hmm. or whether, you know, it's purpose, as long yeah. as it's authentic, that's going to have the longevity, which hopefully all brands need. Yeah. I think the other thing I was remiss in not mentioning, but I think that this is probably a global phenomenon, not just the U.S. phenomenon when stores and restaurants were closed because of COVID and the supply chains were being disrupted, that whole direct-to-consumer e-commerce model really flourished. And now people knew that ordering groceries and picking up at curbside was just a click away. That momentum, although there is a socialization about shopping at retail that some people still find or they missed or they they wanna be part of, e-commerce, some of our early clients were those who said, I want to launch in this environment, but I want to go only e-commerce, then I'll do brick and mortar later. And so we had to become students of e-commerce pretty quickly because we weren't originally established for that basis. But I'm proud to say we've got a few of those in our fold already. Congratulations. It's, it's certainly a big move in the UK as well. And, you know, there's things like recipe boxes and you know home deliveries and very small confectionery deliveries you know whatever you need now you just push a button it arrives on your door so i I think everyone's in e-commerce nowadays to to some degree aren't they so that's really good to hear brad just lastly because i could literally talk to you all day what's next for heart and soul great question you know we've obviously laid out a five-year plan that will have us scale ourselves several times larger than we are today. Whereas at our previous agency, I think we really were hell-bent on being the largest agency in the Southwest or the fastest growing. This one is not about quantity as much as it is quality. And we are very content. Our vision is to be the most beloved agency. Again, when you're called heart and soul, it better have affection and emotion as a part of it. So we literally tell our employees, and we also whisper to our clients, our goal is to be your most beloved partner ever. And I think we'll be very content if we are an agency of 30 or 50 and just doing great work. And particularly if we're selected by clients because they said, you know what, we love how purposeful you are. We know we want to learn from that. We want to be more like that. And I think that some of the clients we actually already have more than just shareholder value and, frankly, sales and profitability in mind. They want to make a difference, too. They want to have an impact socially. They want to change lives, save lives. And if Matt and I are doing that in five years, I I think we're going to be really, really delighted by our journey. And, of course, as you know, it's all about attracting great talent. So I would be remiss if I didn't say, The other thing we want to do is continue to be a magnet for great people with great hearts, uh, great souls. And I just think our vision will come true and we'll be happy. Well, it sounds like a recipe for success, not to go back to the bitching sauce. But, you know, no, it it sounds fantastic, Brad. And I think probably we'll speak in 
four or five years time and you'll probably be a thousand people because it's resonated so well with your market out there but it's it's really great to hear and and i'm i'm really pleased for you and and heart and soul marketing sounds like it's going great guns so yeah congratulations and and thank you so much for your time today i enjoyed it as always thank you so much and uh, maybe we can collab together on some major international project across the ocean i'd love that thanks brad take care So that's it for another episode of the Open Mic Marketing Podcast. As ever, I hope you found today's interview interesting and insightful. See you next time.